It's Improbable Research Podcast number 204. Today, we'll talk about research involving the longest oath, the Okajima Fujinami naval lint removal invention, the effect of country music on suicide, garlic in men and women, artificial fruit processing, improbable medical review, still more clever contraptions to capture crooks, and on what I do not understand and have something to say. Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless. Compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear, and we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, you'll get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes and a bunch of other stuff. Details are at www.patreon.com slash improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website, improbable.com. The Longest Oath with Improbable Dramatic Readings by Robin Abrams. What is the lengthiest spoken oath regularly required of witnesses in a formal legal trial? I believe the answer is 374 words in the legal courts of Burma, now Myanmar until at least the middle of the 19th century. That, anyway, is the longest I've found in examining legal documents and historic reports from the nations of the world over the past 500 years. If anyone knows of or can document a longer oath, I'd, of course, like to hear about that. An English translation of the oath appears in Kenneth R. H. Mackenzie's 1853 book called Burma and the Burmese, which was published in London. Mackenzie writes... Witnesses, both in the civil and criminal causes, are sometimes examined upon oath, although not always. The oath is written in a small book of palm leaves and is held over the head of the witnesses. Foreigners, however, take their own oaths. Mackenzie calls the small book the Book of Imprecations, but says that the Burmese call it the Book of the Oath. It includes some sentiments for any witness who would testify untruthfully. May all those who, in consequence of bribery from either party, do not speak the truth, incur the eight dangers and the ten punishments. May they be infected with all sorts of diseases. Moreover, may they be devoured by elephants, bitten and slain by serpents, killed and devoured by the devils and giants, the tigers and other ferocious animals of the forest. May whoever asserts a falsehood be swallowed by the earth. May he perish by sudden death. May a thunderbolt from heaven slay him, the thunderbolt which is one of the arms of the Nat-Deva. May false witnesses die of bad diseases, be bitten by crocodiles, be drowned. May they become poor, hated of the king. May they have calumniating enemies. May they be driven away. May they become utterly wretched. May everyone ill-treat them and raise lawsuits against them. May they be killed with swords, lances, and every sort of weapon. May they be precipitated into the eight great hells, 
and into the 120 smaller ones. May they be tormented. May they be changed into dogs. And finally, if they become men, may they be slaves a thousand and ten thousand times. May all their undertakings, thoughts, and desires ever remain as worthless as a heap of cotton burnt by the fire. When it comes time for the witness to speak, says Mackenzie, the book of the oath is held over the deponent's head, and he says, I will speak the truth. If I speak not the truth, may it be through the influence of the laws of demerit, viz. passion, anger, folly, pride, false opinion, immodesty, hard-heartedness, and skepticism. So that when I and my relations are on land, land animals as tigers, elephants, buffaloes, poisonous serpents, scorpions, etc., shall seize, crush, and bite us so that we shall certainly die. Let the calamities occasioned by fire, water, rulers... Thieves and enemies oppress and destroy us till we perish and come to utter destruction. That's the beginning of the oath that the witness says. Now here's the rest of that same oath. Let us be subject to all the calamities that are within the body and all that are without the body. May we be seized by madness, dumbness, blindness, deafness, leprosy, and hydrophobia. May we be struck by thunderbolts and lightning and come to sudden death. In the midst of not speaking truth, may I be taken with vomiting, clotted black blood and suddenly die before the assembled people. When I am going by water, may the water gnats assault me, the boat be upset and the property lost. May alligators, porpoises, sharks, or other sea monsters seize and crush me to death. And when I change worlds, may I not arrive among men or gnats, but suffer unmixed punishment and regret in the utmost wretchedness among the four states of punishment, hell, preta, beasts, and athurakai. That's still not the end of the single oath that the witness must take, but we are past the halfway point. Now, let's press on to the finish of that single, in the actual case, uninterrupted oath delivered by the witness when being sworn in during the legal trial. If I speak the truth, may I and my relations, through the influence of the ten laws of merit, and on account of the efficacy of the truth, be freed from all calamities, within and without the body, and may the evils which have not yet come be warded far away. May the ten calamities and five enemies also be kept far away. May the thunderbolts and lightning, the gnat of the waters and all sea animals love me, that I may be safe from them. May my prosperity increase like the rising sun and the waxing moon, and may the seven possessions, the seven laws, the seven merits of the virtuous be permanent in my person. And when I change worlds, may I not go to the four states of punishment, but attain the happiness of men and gnats, and realize merit, reward, and perfect calm. After the concluding thoughts of hope and cheer, the witness, if he is still alive and not seized with madness, dumbness, blindness, deafness, leprosy, and hydrophobia, testifies. <laughs> The Industrial Revolution may have contributed to an increase in naval lint production, but inventors have created few truly new tools for belly button lint removal. That changed slightly in 2007. A patent application, patent number US 2007-0041923, filed by Takao Okajima and Susumu Fujinami, is titled Body Recessed Portion Cleaning Agent. It describes 
a body cavity cleansing agent, which is either poured into or applied to a navel cavity or an ear hole, solidifies after a specified period of time and takes a form which can be removed from said navel cavity or said ear hole together with dirt in said navel cavity or said ear hole. The inventors wax nearly lyrical in this long, long sentence. The present invention also provides a navel cavity opener for stretching and opening a navel cavity so as to allow the above body cavity cleansing agent to be poured into the navel cavity, including a tubular part, a flanged form such as to extend from an outer circumferential surface of the tubular part, and a plurality of fins extending from the outer circumferential surface of the tubular part at a predetermined interval, wherein the tubular part is provided with a cleansing agent injection port at an upper end thereof, a cleansing agent discharge port that communicates with the cleansing agent injection port is provided on a lower end side of the tubular part relative to the flange and the fins extend from the lower end of the tubular part toward the flange such that their height from a tubular part increases gradually. Onward. Okajima and Fujinami express confidence in their invention. The letters they mention here in the piece we're about to read refer to technical drawings that are part of the patent application. They say... By thus performing the belly button cleansing in the mode shown through figure 3A to figure 3RF and figure 4A to figure 4E using the body cavity cleansing agent 1 of the present embodiment, the belly button lint D is readily removed from the navel cavity N. Indeed. Okajima and Fujinami also celebrate the relative safety their invention provides for the person whose belly button is laden with undesired lint. In this process, there is no risk that the inner surface of the navel cavity N is hurt, or a stimulus is given to the abdominal membrane as compared with the case where the belly button is scratched with a fingernail or scraped with a swab. By using the above-described opener 3, the opening of a navel cavity N that is not fully opened can be stretched and opened, and thus facilitating the pouring of the composition 1 thereinto. Also, the opener 3 makes the removal process easier, as the composition 1 accompanied by the belly button lint D can be removed from the navel cavity N together with the opener 3 by removing the opener 3 from the navel cavity N after the composition 1 has solidified. Moreover, as the belly button lint D is removed together with the composition 1, the removal effect is clearly visible, which gives a feeling of the effect of the cleansing process. If the navel cavity is primarily opened enough to allow the body cavity cleansing agent to be poured in, the composition may be directly poured into the navel cavity without using the opener. The effect of country music on suicide with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. The effect of country music on suicide. That's the name of a study done by two professors, Stephen Stack of Wayne State University in Detroit and James Gunlack of Auburn University. They were interested in discovering the effect, if there is any, of country music on suicide. They wrote up their findings in a journal called Social Forces in 1992. Prior to 1992, arguments about country music and suicide were no more than he said, she said affairs. People could express an opinion, and people in bars sometimes did after they'd exhausted all their usual topics of conversation. But there was little or no academic data that could be tossed into these discussions. That changed with the publication of Stephen Stack and James Gunlack's eight-page report. The report is straightforward, if slightly technical, in its claims. This article assesses the link between country music and metropolitan suicide rates. Country music is hypothesized to nurture a suicidal mood through its concerns with problems common in the suicidal population, such as marital discord, alcohol abuse, and alienation from work. 
The results of a multiple regression analysis of 49 metropolitan areas show that the greater the airtime devoted to country music, the greater the white suicide rate. Looking at statistics from 49 cities, we found that the greater the percentage of radio time devoted to country music, the higher the percentage of white suicide. Black suicide was unrelated to country music. Years later, when this work had been honored with an Ig Nobel Prize, that was the 2004 Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine, the Reuters Wire Service published a report about it. It was really kind of an accidental research report, Gunlock, a sociologist said. We used all the standard predictors of suicide, like marriage, and I sorted the data so the cities with higher than expected rates would be at the top. There at the top was Nashville, Tennessee. His graduate statistics class said the common factor must be the country music. One student who knew how to track down radio station playlists helped Gunlock and colleague Stephen Stack discover that people who listened to more country music were indeed more likely to commit suicide. Stack and Gunlock's discovery did not go unnoticed in the rarefied groves of academe. It drew a slew of responses from professors who could not or would not agree that country music explains 51% of the variance in urban white suicide rates. Gary W. Mauck and three of his colleagues at Utah State University were especially incensed. In 1994, they published a seven-page treatise called An Achy Breaky Heart May Not Kill You. It refers, of course, to the song Billy Ray Cyrus sang to great acclaim and riches in 1992. The words may have lodged themselves into your heart and mind. But don't tell my heart my achy, breaky heart. I just don't think it'd understand. And if you tell my heart, my achy, breaky heart, he might blow up and kill this man. Gary W. Mauck and his colleagues, invoking the power of that song by mentioning it in their study title, sing, well, write, assertively about Stephen Stack and James Gundlach's The Effect of Country Music on Suicide. While Stack and Gunlock found a relationship between the amount of country music airtime and suicide rates, they have not accounted adequately for directionality. Likewise, one cannot determine, one, whether whites who are divorced tend to listen to country music, two, whether listening to country music tends to cause their non-country music fans' spouses to divorce them, or three, whether country music makes romantic conflict and divorce seem more normal for those individuals who are contemplating suicide, thus increasing the likelihood that they will attempt suicide. That argument, and many like it, raged back and forth for several years. A good time was had by all. Finally, in 2004, for seeking after the suicide-inducing effects of mournful little helpings of heartache and mechanical rhyme, Stephen Stack and James Gunlack were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize. Sporting boots, a cowboy hat, and an inner sense of rhythm and harmony, James Gundlach traveled to the Ig Nobel ceremony, where he cheerfully accepted the prize. He said, There's an old country music joke that starts out, What do you get when you play a country record backwards? AA works, guns disappear, your spouse, your kids, and your dog come back, and the boss's son-in-law, who got that job that should have been your promotion, got caught in bed with the boss's secretary. You get your promotion, and the future looks bright. Now, studies have shown that every one of these reversals, except the dog, has been related to reduced suicide risk. And if anybody is interested in funding research on pets and suicide, please contact Steve Stack or me. Thank you.
In interviews with reporters and admirers, Gunlack explained that more than a decade after the country music paper was published, the world had changed. The country music that we have today is not the same kind of country music that was related to suicide back when we did this. He told the Reuters correspondent who tracked him down during Ig Nobel week. When we did that, there were songs like D-I-V-O-R-C-E. It was predominantly tears in the beer types of music. Since then, Gunlack lamented philosophically country music had become peppier. Stack and Gunlack have each had active research careers that extend beyond their famous interest in country music and suicide. Among their more colorful non-country music publications are Divorce and Sex, published in 1992 in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. They use data collected from 340 divorced people to explore sexual activity among this group. Results indicate a much lower level of sexual activity than found in past research. Music and suicide remained on their minds. The year 1994 saw the arrival of their blockbuster report written together with a third colleague, Jimmy Reeves. It's called The Heavy Metal Subculture and Suicide. In that report, they concluded that the greater the strength of the metal subculture, the higher the youth suicide rate. The music may nurture suicidal tendencies already present in the subculture. Stack especially has been prolific. Among his post-country music suicide papers have been several classics. His opera Subculture and the Suicide for Honor in 2002 reports that A multivariate logistic regression analysis finds that opera fans are 2.37 times more accepting of suicide because of dishonor than non-fans. Blues fans and suicide acceptability in 2000 reports that Multivariate logistic regression analysis found that blues fans were no more accepting of suicide than non-fans. Heavy metal, religiosity, and suicide acceptability in 1998, is a preliminary exploration of the territory Stack and Gunlack would explore in depth in their 1994 report on that subject. The earlier version reports simply that a link between heavy metal fanship and suicide acceptability was found. Branching out in the artistic world, Stack explained in a 1997 report called Suicide Among Artists that Logistic regression techniques indicated that being an artist elevated suicide risk by 112% relative to non-artists. In 1996, Stack daringly looked into the widespread belief that dentists have the highest suicide rate of all professions. His report, titled Suicide Risk Among Dentists, a Multivariate Analysis, concludes laconically that the link between suicide and dentistry is not spurious. By the way, that song, Achy Breaky Heart, inspired quite a few people to do quite a few things that the song's composer, who has the mellifluous name Don Von Tress, probably never anticipated. One of those things is a report published in the Emergency Medical Journal in 2011. The title is Achy Breaky Makey Wakey Heart? A Randomized Crossover Trial of Musical Prompts. The authors, Malcolm Woolard, Jason Poposky, Bray McWinney, Letty Rollins, Graham Monroe, and Peter O'Mara are at several medical institutions in Australia and the UK. They explain. Objective. Compared with listening to no music, does listening to the song Achy Breaky Heart 
or the song Disco Science, increased the proportion of pre-hospital professionals delivering chest compressions at 2010 guideline compliant rates of 100 to 120 beats per minute and 50 to 60 millimeter depths. Methods. A randomized crossover trial recruiting at an Australian ambulance conference. Volunteers performed three one-minute sequences of continuous chest compressions on a mannequin accompanied by no music, repeated choruses of Achy Breaky Heart, and Disco Science, pre-randomized for order. Conclusions. Listening to Disco Science significantly increased the proportion of pre-hospital professionals compressing at 2010 guideline compliant rates. Regardless of intervention, more than half gave compressions that were too shallow. Alternative audible feedback mechanisms may be more effective. Garlic in Men and Women with Improbable Dramatic Readings by Andrew Berry. This study assessed the effects of the odor and ingestion of garlic bread on family interactions. With those words, Dr. Alan R. Hirsch of the Smell and Taste Treatment and Research Foundation in Chicago declared the purpose and the breadth of his research. However, Dr. Hirsch did not analyze the matter as deeply as he could have. It's not to say that Dr. Hirsch was lazy. His experiment examined the interactions of garlic bread and 50 families, an undertaking that involved the preparation and consumption of not just 50, but a full 100 meals. Each family was made to experience dinner with garlic bread and also dinner without garlic bread. For each family, the order of these two experiences was determined randomly. Dr. Hirsch published details in an article called Effects of Garlic Bread on Family Interactions, published in the year 2000 in the journal Psychosomatic Medicine. The families ranged in size from 2 to 12 people. In their breaded meal, each family had to endure a full minute before being exposed to the garlicky aroma. Dr. Hirsch's published account reads like the science adventure tale it is. During the second minute, the garlic bread aroma was presented. During the third minute, the bread was ingested. The rest of the story can be and is told in numbers. Smelling and eating garlic bread decreased the number of negative interactions between family members, and the number of pleasant interactions increased. Dr. Hirsch reached the conclusion that... Serving garlic bread at dinner enhanced the quality of family interactions. This has potential applications in promoting and maintaining shared family experiences, thus stabilizing the family unit and also may have utility as an adjunct to family therapy. But what, biochemically, is the mechanism for this effect? On that level, Dr. Hirsch is mum. For an answer, one must look elsewhere, perhaps to the Journal of Biochemical Chemistry, which in 2002 published a study called The Active Principle of Garlic at Atomic Resolution. The German authors of that report caution that... Despite the fact that many cultures around the world value and utilize garlic as a fundamental component of their cuisine, as well as of their medicine cabinets, relatively little is known about the plant's protein configuration that is responsible for the specific properties of garlic. This scarcity of knowledge also obtruded itself in 1998, when three scientists in Wales published a medical study called what sort of men take garlic preparations? 
their conclusion, Men who take garlic supplements are generally similar to non-garlic users. Artificial fruit processing in children and chimps, with an improbable dramatic reading by Nicole Sharp. The question, what happens when you expose children and chimpanzees to artificial fruit encased in technology, throbs throughout a 12-page study. Imitative Learning of Artificial Fruit Processing in Children, Homo sapiens, and Chimpanzees, Pan Troglodytes, by A. Witten, D. M. Custance, J. C. Gomez, P. Texidor, and K. A. Bard, published in the Journal of Comparative Psychology in 1996. The authors at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, at Universidad Autonoma in Madrid, Spain, and at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, report... The human subjects were eight two-year-olds, eight three-year-olds, and eight four-year-olds. The six chimpanzee subjects had a mean age of four and a half years. No attempt was made to make the artificial fruit resemble real fruit in appearance. The design was intended only functionally to mimic food that needed various types of manipulation to open it and extract an edible core. It consisted of a transparent perspex or plexiglass box, 21 centimeters, by 17 centimeters by 14 centimeters deep, with a hinged lid in the top. The box was firmly screwed to a board. Before the lid could be opened to retrieve the food, one of two sets of latching devices had to be dealt with, a bolts latch or a barrel latch. The barrel latch incorporated two subcomponents that had to be released sequentially, a pin and a handle. It is accurate to say that the chimpanzees were generally more likely than the children to use their own methods to achieve an outcome like the demonstrators for the pin, handle, and bolts. The children copied what they had seen in more detail, even when elements had no functional significance, i.e. turning the pin, twisting the bolts. They appeared to be assuming that if an adult were doing the task in such and such a way, it was a method worth investing in even to the extent of twisting the bolts 161 times. Even after discovering that they could simply pull out the pin or bolts, several continued the non-essential actions on them in later trials, a graphic testament to the cultural or conventional nature of the species. Because the chimpanzees were nevertheless the fastest to solve the barrel latch problem and performed as well as the children on the bolts, one can hypothesize that the striking cultural and conventional tendency of the children may be so adaptive as a general strategy for humans that it remains habitual even in a specific situation in which less fidelity would actually afford more efficiency. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Improbable Medical Review. Reports about improbable diagnoses, techniques, and research. With improbable dramatic readings by Corky White. Cars over feet. 
feet rolled over by cars, radiological and histological considerations from experiments, by J. Falk, J. Michael, P. Isel, and M. A. Rothschild, published in the International Journal of Legal Medicine in 2008. The authors at the University of Cologne, Germany, report... This study investigates the question of whether bone structures are injured when a vehicle rolls over a foot. A total of 15 detached feet from deceased persons who had donated their bodies to research were rolled over using a Volkswagen Passat station wagon. The feet were enclosed in various types of shoes. The feet were dissected and histological and radiological examinations were carried out. The only macroscopically well-defined abrasions of the epidermis were on the back of the foot in the area of contact with the tire and only where the foot had not been covered by a shoe. No injuries to the bone structures of the feet were ascertained, either radiologically or micro-radiologically. Ten isolated feet, five left and five right, were used in the investigation. The feet showed no injuries or irregularities. The footwear was of various types, such as sandals, high heels, sneakers, and business shoes, varying from sizes four and a half to nine. Before the rolling over process, x-rays were taken and the foot surfaces were digitally photographed. The feet were inserted into the footwear. They were then loaded with the sharply amputated proximal tibia and fibula bone ends into a laboratory rack and were placed on the ground. For the rolling over process itself, a typical parking situation was simulated and recorded on video. Using a VW Passat station wagon, 1,350 kilograms, the front left tire of the vehicle was driven at walking speed, running over the feet at a right angle to the long axis. The experiments were performed on asphalt with an average speed of about 0.3 to 0.5 meters per second. For the second experimental series, five more injury-free feet from deceased persons, two women and one man, were rolled over, three left and two right. The feet were again put into various footwear such as sandals, high heels, sneakers, and business shoes, varying from size four and a half to nine. There were no external injuries or irregularities on the foot surfaces. After the rolling over, the isolated feet were deep frozen at minus 20 degrees centigrade and then sliced into four millimeter thick sections with a bandsaw made by Reich of Remshalden, Germany, with a saw blade length of 3,350 millimeters. Injuries caused by the rolling over process were found only in the area of the back of the foot that was not covered by footwear. When the back of the foot was covered by a shoe, no definable irregularities appeared in the skin surface. Microradiologically, there was no damage to the bone structures in the form of fractures, incomplete fractures, corticalis interruptions, or spongiosa compressions. Thus, microradiologically, there was no indication of any injury to the bones. In the practice of legal medicine, we are occasionally asked for expert opinions on incidents involving feet that have been rolled over by the tire of a car. 
The case constellation is almost always the same. One scenario is that a person wants to keep a parking space free for someone else, and another car driver then aggressively forces his or her car into this parking space at walking speed, whereby, occasionally, the foot of the person holding the parking space free is then rolled over. Another background story frequently presented is that the injured person was trying to direct a car into a tight parking space and inadvertently his or her foot was rolled over. What is common to both of these most frequently given case constellations is that it is predominantly a matter of slow speeds and in the majority of cases, feet with shoes are rolled over. Conclusion. Bone injuries are not to be expected at low speeds. The Man Whose Innards Brewed Beer A Case Study of Gut Fermentation Syndrome, Auto Brewery, with Saccharomyces cerevisiae as the causative organism, by Barbara Cordell and Justin McCarthy, published in the International Journal of Clinical Medicine in 2013. The authors at Panola College in Carthage, Texas, reports. Gut fermentation syndrome, also known as autobrewery syndrome, is a relatively unknown phenomenon in modern medicine. This article presents a case study of a 61-year-old male. The authors believe this patient had gut fermentation syndrome, as documented informally by his wife and verified formally by the hospitalization glucose challenge and the documentation of alcohol levels. The stool culture suggests that Saccharomyces cerevisiae was the causative agent, and the fact that the stool cultures were negative for S. cerevisiae after treatment and the symptoms subsided at that time supports this hypothesis. A 61-year-old male presented in January of 2010 with at least a five-year history of unexplained intoxication. In 2004, after surgery for a broken foot and subsequent treatment with antibiotics, he began to seem excessively intoxicated after only two beers. And on occasion, he would seem intoxicated without having been drinking. His wife, who is a nurse, began to document this phenomenon with a Department of Transportation-approved alcohol breathalyzer. Often his blood alcohol percent was as high as 0.33 to 0.40. The legal limit for alcohol in the United States is 0.08%. They could find no correlation to these episodes other than scant ingestion of alcohol, such as from a piece of gum with alcohol sugar or a candy with chocolate liqueur as an ingredient. The episodes of intoxication began to increase in severity and frequency over the ensuing years. In April of 2010, the patient was admitted to the hospital for a 24-hour observation period. His belongings were inspected to ensure he did not have alcohol with him and no visitors were allowed during the 24-hour period. Blood was drawn for blood alcohol concentration, BAC, levels at baseline and every two hours and glucose levels every four hours. Breathalyzer levels were supervised by Texas DPS, Department of Public Safety, officers. At one point during the afternoon, the patient's BAC rose to 120 milligrams per deciliter, 0.12% per breathalyzer, in this controlled situation. Conclusion. This is a rare syndrome, but should be recognized because of the social implications, such as loss of job, 
relationship difficulties, stigma, and even possible arrest and incarceration, it would behoove healthcare providers to listen more carefully to the intoxicated patient who denies ingesting alcohol. Risk of papaya consumption during pregnancy in man. Papaya consumption is unsafe in pregnancy. Fact or fable? Scientific evaluation of a common belief in some parts of Asia using a rat model by Adabawali Adabi'i, P. Ganesan Adekan, and R.N.V. Prasad, published in the British Journal of Nutrition in 2002. The authors at National University of Singapore explain. Though evaluation of potentially toxic agents often relies on animal experimental results to predict risk in man, further studies will be necessary to ascertain the ultimate risk of unripe papaya or semi-ripe papaya consumption during pregnancy in man. Here are some more of the spectacular patents filed over the years for machinery to catch crooks of various kinds, catch muggers, robbers, hijackers. We have dramatic readings from Richard Baguley. We'll start with a look at Shelby's supernaturalistic bank confession apparatus. Helene Adelaide Shelby's apparatus for obtaining criminal confessions and photographically recording them was granted U.S. Patent 1749090. That was in 1930. This device tries to ensure that criminals, having been caught, would confess and would confess in a manner that ensured that they would be convicted and sent to prison. The present invention relates to a new and useful apparatus for obtaining confessions from culprits, although suspected of commission of crimes, and photographically recording those confessions in the form of sound waves, in conjunction with their pictures, depicting their every expression and emotion to be preserved for later reproduction as evidence against them. The primary objective of my invention is the provision of an apparatus for the creation of illusory effects, calculated to impress the subject with their being of a supernatural character and to so work upon his imagination as to enable an inquisitor operating in conjunction with the recording system to obtain confessions and graphically record them by light action under the control of electric impulses governed by varying intensities of sound waves. This patent includes a number of drawings which illustrate exactly what the inventor has in mind. Figure 1 is a side elevation illustrative of a structure divided into two chambers one chamber of which is darkened to provide quarters in which the suspect is confined while being subjected to examination. The other chamber is being provided for the examiner, the two chambers being separated from each other by a partition, which is provided with a panel upon one side of which is mounted a figure in the form of a skeleton, the said skeleton having the rear portion of the skull removed and the recording apparatus inserted therein as shown. Figure 2 is a front view looking into the enclosure in which the skeleton is mounted and as seen looking from the suspect's examination quarters. Let's take a look now at Tybalt's through-the-floor burglar trap. Alphonse J. Tybalt's burglar trap, which was granted U.S. patent 1807944 in the year 1931, improves on a long tradition of providing trap doors through which burglars could be made to plummet. The trap appliance is electrically operated by a switch under control of the cashier. The appliance includes a trap door in the main floor of the bank, located directly above an imprisoning cage or trap, and the door is adapted to be dropped from set position 
to plunge the burglar into the trap or cage. The top of the cage or trap is normally open and a horizontally sliding door or closure for the trap is automatically closed by the weight of the burglar after he is plunged into the trap. The sliding movement of the automatically operated slide door is instrumental in restoring the trap door in the main floor to normal set position flush with the main floor. In 1972, a patent was given for the Telephone and Gas Airborne Crime Prevention System. Peter Boudreau was granted U.S. Patent 3680499 for what he called a crime prevention system. The system assumed and took advantage of an airplane hijacker's need to communicate telephonically. A hijack prevention system for an airplane wherein a conventional appearing telephone is positioned outside the pilot's cabin on the airplane. The telephone is provided with apertures for the emission of an incapacitating gas. The emission of the gas is controlled by the pilot or co-pilot from within the pilot's cabin. When a hijacker identifies himself during the flight, the stewardess requests the hijackers to converse with the pilot over the telephone. While conversing with the suspected hijacker, the pilot has a chance to determine for himself whether the person is really a serious hijacker. If the pilot so decides, he activates the hijack prevention system by releasing the incapacitating gas through the telephone. The hijacker is then taken into custody while he is under the influence of the incapacitating gas. The key phrase in this patent is incapacitating gas, is that correct? Incapacitating gas, yes. Two years later, in 1974, came the patenting of the Skyjacker Injection System. Jack Jensen was granted U.S. Patent 3841328 in that year, 1974, for what Jensen called an airplane hijacking injector. This device allows the flight crew of the jet to have a chair, a seat, take nearly complete charge of the hijacker who is sitting in that seat. Inventor Jensen wrote... I have devised apparatus to be incorporated in each seat of an airplane such that the pilot or other crew member can remotely actuate the disabling apparatus associated with the seat occupied by the airplane hijacker for disabling or killing the hijacker without endangering other passengers. The disabling apparatus comprises solenoid actuated seatbelt locking means arranged to prevent the unlocking of the seatbelt in combination with an inflatable seat back arranged to be actuated to prevent movement of a hijacker. And and this arrangement, in order to work, because they don't know in advance, of course, which seat might have a hijacker, every seat in the entire aircraft must be equipped with this syringe that's inside the seat. Continue onward, please. A hypodermic syringe is disposed under the seat of the airplane and is pivotally mounted on a frame such that a first solenoid actuated apparatus will drive the needle of the hypodermic syringe through the bottom seat cushion and into the hijacker, at which time a second solenoid actuated device will automatically inject a strong sedative or poison for incapacitating the hijacker. And with this device installed in every seat in an aircraft, all of the passengers can take their seats at the beginning of the flight, able to relax in the knowledge that if there is a hijacker sitting next to them, that hijacker could at any moment have a syringe thrust up violently through the bottom of the seat into the hijacker's rear end. I have to say that thinking that was a poison syringe underneath my seat, just a mere electrical pulse away from being driven into my body would make me feel a lot safer. May we recommend research reports whose very titles suggest they may be worth reading. 
with improbable dramatic readings by Melissa Franklin. First, a study about something that vanishes mysteriously. Gastric disappearance of dietary fiber by adolescent boys. S. Gramstorff Fetzer, C. Keys, and H. M. Fox published in the journal Serial Chemistry in 1979. When you said S. Gramstorff Fetzer, C. Keys, and H. M. Fox, those are the uh, people who wrote this? Apparently. What do you think they mean by gastric disappearance of dietary fiber? That the fiber gets lost in the gastric part of the body. You had any experience with this? With dietary fiber being lost? By adolescent boys? No. Next, a study about something that's tall and small. A Tall Space with a Small Bottom by Istvan Juhaz, Serharon Shila, Lajos Sukup, and Zoltan Zensmikl Ossi. Published in the Proceedings of the American Mathematical Society in 2003. Do you know any of these authors? No. Do you know how to pronounce the names of any of these authors? Not very well. You want to try it again? Okay. Istvan. That sounds good. Juhas. Has. How do you spell that? I-S-T-V-A accent N. J-U-H-A-S-Z. Istvan Juhas. And the next author is? Saharon Shila. And the next one? Lajos Sukup. And the fourth one? Zoltan Zentmikl Ossi. That's worth saying again, isn't it? Zoltan Zentmikl Ossi. The title of this paper is A Tall Space with a Small Bottom. Do you have any professional experience with a tall space with a small bottom? No. None? Well, a closet. A particular small closet. You've been inside a small closet. I have. A tall, small closet. We'll retain some mystery about that. We won't <laughs> probe that any Thank anymore. Thank you. And a study about something that may be difficult to understand. On what I do not understand and have something to say, part one. That's the title? Yes. Could you repeat that, please? On what I do not understand and have something to say, part one. Also by Seheran Shila, published in the journal Fundamenta Mathematica. In 2000. You say also because... Because uh, that person was the author on the previous paper. So that person has experience with a tall space with a small bottom and has something that he or she does not understand and has something to say. Yes. Part one. Well, they have something to say, but not clear with what it's about. And these on are, what I do not understand and have something to say. And these are both mathematics papers. Yes. Mathematician. And you're a physicist. Yes, I'm a physicist. Well, let me ask you the possibly embarrassing question. Are you familiar with the phenomena here that they are uh, discussing? Yes, I think it's very important to have something to say about what you do not understand, for obvious reasons. You have to somehow make your way into the space of the thing you don't understand by saying something. That's really the only way in. That's what you have to say about that? Yes. Supposing you don't understand something, well, you could just go home or you could say something about what you don't understand, and that would start the process of understanding. And this was published in a mathematics journal. Yes. Well, even in mathematics, they try and understand things. And they say things. That's the thing. The question would be more, do mathematicians say things? What kinds of things do they say? Well, usually they write down equations. So it's not obvious that the foray into the unknown should be through words, but possibly they also say things. And the final item on our list here is a study about something that's round, green, and ambiguous. 
Brussels sprouts, an exceptionally rich source of ambiguity for anti-cancer strategies by M. Paolini, published in the journal Toxicology and Applied Pharmacology in 1998. What do they mean by ambiguity here? I assume they mean whether it's good to eat Brussels sprouts or bad, or doesn't matter, for anti-cancer strategies. Do you have any professional experience with that? Yes, I eat a lot of Brussels sprouts. Whenever I'm at a meeting, at a conference, or at a seminar, I try to eat Brussels sprouts. In the physics world, in your experience, there are... We have nothing to say about Brussels sprouts in the physics world. When you're saying we, you have often described yourself as an experimentalist, in contrast to the people who sometimes describe themselves as theorists. We experimentalists... When you're saying we, okay. We experimentalists don't usually do Brussels sprout experiments. Why not? Well, there's no physics questions that arise. Do the theorists do anything with them? Possibly. (laughs) Because they're interesting topologically. I've heard that you are the person responsible for introducing the word penguin into the great literature of physics. Is that true? There could have been a use of penguin before. I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure I introduced it, but I certainly added the word penguin to my field, my own field. Has anyone introduced the phrase Brussels sprouts into the physics literature that you know of? Quite possibly. I'd have to do a Google search. It is quite an interesting thing, a Brussels sprout. Do go on. Well, just the way it's made. How is it made? Have you been to a Brussels sprouts factory? (laughs) No, what I mean is the way it, 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 it is, just its shape and its form is odd. Actually, it is pretty interesting because often the Brussels sprout, the the last layer will be very tight. Brussels sprouts are very interesting. I'm pretty sure someone's written something about Brussels sprouts. Well, I don't know. I think probably cabbages, more likely. Cabbages. We'll we'll look it up as soon as, as soon as this, like any second now, I'm going to just jump and look at. Okay. And anyone listening can go and look up Brussels sprouts and cabbages in the physics world. That's right. Exactly. And let us know if anything turns up. Yes. Any further thoughts on this? No, I'm very, very interested in the ambiguity. And to quote I'm very intrigued by a tall space with a small bottom. (laughs) You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about, visit our website, improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon.com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Robin Abrams, Chris Katsapas, Jean Burko Gleason, Andrew Berry, Nicole Sharp, Corky White, Richard Baguley, and Melissa Franklin lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shedler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petschek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then... Goodbye. Goodbye.